And open with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. If you are using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 866. Page 866. While you're turning, let me just make a a comment. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we had the, the wonderful privilege of commissioning Trinity Church out of CCF. And so as Pastor Nick shared in his prayer this morning, right now, Trinity Church is gathering for the very first time as a brand new church in Belmont, and we are thrilled. And so last week we sent out almost a hundred of you, a hundred from our CCF church family to now form this brand new church. And so I would encourage you to, to, to keep praying for Trinity Church. I'd also encourage you if you live in the Belmont area or some of those surrounding areas and this is maybe kind of striking a chord in your own heart and you're thinking, oh, I wonder what's up with Trinity Church or I'd like to know more. Uh, feel free to reach out to any of our leaders, anyone you saw on the platform, or you can find out more if you just Google Trinity Church Dayton and uh, you can find out more information there. We'd love to talk to you maybe about how you can be a part of Trinity Church as well. And maybe this morning as you look around, you're like, well, there, there are a lot of there are empty seats this morning uh, around. We could actually maybe find a seat this morning. And, uh, and so rather than looking at those empty seats and, and kind of, you know, a little Eeyore-esque, like, oh, they're gone. Trinity Church isn't here. So sad. I miss my friends. Uh, I want you to look at those empty seats as as what the Lord has done to send out from among us. That those seats are empty around you this morning because there there is a new church in Belmont this hour worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, preparing to do ministry in that community. Uh, That community that lacked a faithful, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church. And so we uh, were happy about that. You can also view those empty seats as an opportunity for Maybe unsaved family members or friends or people you know that, that are far from the Lord or people you know that need solid food from the Word of God week after week uh, to gather and to invite them uh, to be a part. So, as I said a few minutes ago, we, uh, we are aware that we live in a world that is broken. That's why we plant Trinity Church and that's why we send out missionaries and that's why we equip college students and military men and women and highly transient people in jobs that move them all over the place because we believe the kingdom of God is better served by more healthy churches than by a larger CCF. And so our goal is, and by the grace of God, we hope and pray always will be to bring in, to train up, to equip, to encourage, to love on, to preach to, to evangelize, to disciple, to edify, to counsel, and then to send out. Whether you're military or college student or whether you think, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life, that's great. You have a part of helping to equip, to send out, and you're sent out into your neighborhood and your community and your workplace because we all have a role to play because we live in a broken world, a world for whom the only answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our text this morning, we come face to face with the realities of a broken world, and we come face to face with the truth that Jesus alone is the answer for our problems and for our hurts and for our suffering. 
In our text this morning, we are introduced to a father and a daughter. And both have come face to face with the brokenness of the world. And both are in desperate situations. And both realize they only have one hope, one last chance. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. The word of the Lord says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all the crowd denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now this is one of those narratives that just pulls you in, doesn't it? There is a father whose only daughter is dying. And of all the things that we fear in a fallen and broken world, death and physical suffering are usually near the top of the list. Like we can deal if we have to with common natural disasters or with financial crisis or with relational discord. But our fear is usually the strongest when we face physical suffering or when death seems imminent. And this father is right in the middle of a situation like this. His daughter, his only daughter, lay dying. There seems that there is nothing else that could be done. All the the home remedies have failed. The collective wisdom of the medical community hasn't changed this girl's conditions. 
Her parents need a miracle. And somehow, Jairus must have heard of Jesus. Maybe he was in the crowd as Jesus has already been preaching and teaching for some time. Or maybe he's heard from trusted sources about how Jesus has healed the sick and cast demons out of the demon-possessed. How he's already raised a young man to life. And we're not sure all that this man, this administrator of the synagogue, knew about Jesus. But we do know that he believed that Jesus could help. In fact, he believed that Jesus was his last hope. Look at verse 41. Falling at Jesus' feet, he begged, he pleaded, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Just look at the desperation comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. We're told this man is a, a leader, an organizer in the synagogue. He, this was someone who had some measure of influence and responsibility and reputation. But now all of that is gone. He's desperate. He doesn't send a servant to make this request. He doesn't play the religious leader card. He doesn't campaign on his own worthiness for Jesus to help. He doesn't come and offer an official request, fitting of a dignified leader like this. No. Death, the final enemy, has brought him to his knees. He throws himself down on the ground at Jesus' feet. And this voice that once directed the worshipers in the synagogue is now likely filled with fear and with urgency as he implores Jesus, please come and help. My daughter, my only daughter, lay dying. Now, if we pause here just for a moment. I think I just want to point out that you can see how suffering and the fear of death have a way of draining of us of our self-reliance. When we come face to face with death, when we come face to face with this kind of suffering, it reveals, doesn't it, where our trust is. I mean, this man isn't concerned about what the crowd thinks. Or about what his fellow synagogue leaders think. This is a man with a daughter. A dying daughter. And right now he will do whatever it takes to give her a chance of survival. And it's interesting that in the Bible those who so often thought that they had a handle on life. Who so often thought that they had life altogether, were the very ones who missed out on Jesus. But the ones who drank deeply of Jesus, the ones who received from Jesus, who who found Jesus for who he truly is, were those who were the most broken and the most needy and the most unwell. It's almost like Jesus is a physician who came not for those who think that they are well, but for those who know how helpless they are without him. see, desperation can bring clarity like that. Clarity about what we trust in. 
And for this father, it made him fall at the feet of Jesus and beg this Jewish carpenter to come and help. Somehow he believed that Jesus could help. But this father is not the only desperate person in the crowd that day who believed that Jesus could help because Luke, our author, interjects now another storyline. And as Jesus turns and begins to leave with Jairus to go to his house, it's almost as though the camera lens now zooms in on this desperate woman in the crowd. This woman who also believed that Jesus could help. Look at verse 43, actually the end of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Well, 12 years is a long time, especially if it's 12 years of suffering. And for this woman in the crowd, 12 years must have seemed like an eternity. Luke tells us that she had this discharge of blood that continued for 12 long years. She had spent all that she had. She spent every last cent of her savings on medical treatment in hopes that she might get better. She sought out doctors and specialists, but she didn't get better. In fact, according to Mark, she only got worse. Her body wasn't responding to the treatment. I think it's interesting that for 12 years she has known pain and suffering and during those same 12 years Jairus and his wife have enjoyed the the life and the joy of their precious daughter. The contrast there. And yet both are desperate for Jesus. Now this woman, for 12 years she's been sick and she's poor. But to make matters worse, her condition according to Leviticus chapter 15 means that she is ceremonially unclean. Which means she can't socialize with her family and friends. It means that she most likely lives alone or with other unclean people. It means that she couldn't touch others or be touched by others. Because anything that came into physical contact with her then became unclean. Philip Ryken writes, people suffering from chronic illness often struggle with isolation as their physical limitations cut them off from social interaction. This woman's alienation was profound. She was an outcast. She'd pulled away from all physical contact out of obedience to the law, including with members of her own family. Think about it. It had been 12 long years since anyone had embraced her. During that time, she constantly had to be careful not to touch anyone or to let anyone touch her. She had to let everyone know that she was unclean. And so maybe her physical condition was not a life and death condition, but clearly something inside of her had already died. And she's sick, and she's broke, and she's isolated, and she's likely very, very afraid. 
But perhaps, like Jairus, she had heard or heard about Jesus. And she believes Jesus might be able to help me. And so she finds out where Jesus is going to be. And she travels there. And she gets into the crowd and she strategically places herself so that when Jesus passes by, she can actually be there to touch him. And perhaps she even disguised herself, knowing that if people saw her as someone who is clearly unclean, they wouldn't want anything to do with her. They would stay away from her. And as Jesus passes, she reaches out and Luke says she touches the fringe of his garment. Jewish men wore fringes at the four corners of their garment. They were blue tassels that God commanded the Jewish men to wear as a reminder of his covenant with them. These blue tassels were a reminder to the people every time they saw those tassels that there was a God who rescued them from slavery when they were helpless. Who gave them new life when they had nothing to offer. But hopelessness. And this woman who has nothing to offer but hopelessness, who is completely helpless, reaches out in faith, trusting in the promises of the covenant keeping God. That he will be faithful to his covenant, that he is good. And guess what? Just like the winds and the waves were immediately calm at the voice of Jesus. At the touch of Jesus, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She is immediately healed. And what happens next is interesting and mildly confusing. Look at verse 45. And Jesus said, who, is it that t- who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter, right, Captain Obvious, says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Right? Implied in there, everybody's touching you. What a ridiculous question to ask, Jesus. Jesus is talking about something else. Verse 46, he said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Does it strike you as odd that Jesus is able to heal someone without knowing it? Without knowing perhaps the details? Like somehow maybe his robe has mystical power. And then it's odd that Jesus asked this question, who touched me? I mean, did Jesus really not know who touched him? Well, in answer to those questions, it's clear that the healing power is not in Jesus' robe itself. Otherwise, everyone who was touching Jesus would have been healed from whatever infirmity they had. And verse 48 makes it clear that the healing came from Jesus and was received by this woman's faith. Right? This is not some you know, high-powered, specialty, mystical, technicolor dream coat that Jesus kind of put on and gave him, you know, special powers. No. The power is not in the robe itself. 
One commentator writes, faith has nothing to do with confidence in some magical properties attached to Jesus' clothing. So even if somehow archaeologists were able to discover the actual clothes of Jesus, the actual things that he had touched, there's no power in any of that. There's no power in relics. The power is in God himself working through Jesus to bring healing to brokenness. But what about Jesus' question here? Who was it that touched me? Well, there's a couple possible answers. One is that Jesus, being fully God, was also fully man, and as fully man, was not aware of who had received that special power. He knew power had gone out. He didn't know the specifics about where the power went or to whom the power went to. Much like Jesus does not know when he will return, only the Father. But a second option, and I think a more likely option, is that Jesus really did know. But he was using this question to get this woman to publicly testify to the work of Jesus. He was using this question to draw this woman out of the shadows And this could be especially important because remember, this is an unclean woman. She's legally and ceremonially unclean. She's not allowed to have contact with other people. The only way she can be restored is to make public profession of her healing. And at that public profession of the healing, there are going to be questions asked. Okay, how did this happen? So Jesus lovingly was providing her an opportunity to go public with her healing and with her faith. To declare, I am healed and this is how. Through Jesus. And that's exactly what she does. She comes forward to testify. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. It should sound similar because that's what Jairus has just done. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus responds to her in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That word daughter there is significant. Not just because she is a daughter of God, but because also we're already thinking about the story of a daughter. This is another daughter who needed the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the only time that Jesus refers to someone as daughter in all the Bible. I think Jesus is teaching us something about what it means to belong to him. He's speaking about the grace of adoption in calling her daughter, which is huge on Adoption Sunday, isn't it? One author writes, for 12 agonizing years, she has been alienated from society. There must have been many times in her long suffering when she felt completely rejected, even perhaps by God, and she wanted someone to hold her and care for her. And now she is wrapped up in the embrace of her Savior. Jesus had not called her out to humiliate her, but to save her and to heal her and to love her and to adopt her as God's own dear child. 
And Jesus is showing us what it looks like to belong to him. It looks like receiving the work of Jesus by faith. She doesn't contribute anything to her healing except to respond in faith to the true identity of Jesus. Which is why her public statement is so powerful. She is saying, this is what Jesus has done for me. Which is something we are all called to be a part of. This is what Jesus has done for me. Well, if this chapter, again, were a movie, I think the camera might zoom out now a bit and we would be reminded that this entire time Jesus has been talking to this woman, Jairus has been standing there. He's been waiting. Can you imagine what that must have been like? His little girl is dying. His last hope is Jesus. And while he might genuinely care for this woman with the issue of blood, And while he might genuinely be happy that Jesus has healed her, I wonder if there was something deep inside his gut that was crying out, hurry up, Jesus. Like, my daughter needs you. Stop with the stopping. Stop with all the distractions. We're running out of time. And certainly you have never had thoughts like that before with God. Come on, God, hurry up. When are you going to heal me? When are you going to send me a spouse? When are you going to fix my marriage? When are you going to save my parent? When are you going to give us children? When are you going to bring my prodigal child home? When are you going to cure my anxiety? When are you going to give me the strength I need to get through another day? And to be fair, we don't know exactly what Jairus was thinking, but it's possible that he was thinking something like that because he was human. And I would venture to say we have all questioned God like that. God, I know you have the power to work. I know you have the power to help. I know you have the power to heal. I know you have a plan. But it seems like you're wasting time. It seems like you're distracted. It seems like you're not paying attention to my need. To make matters worse, in verse 49, Jairus comes face to face with the cold, hard reality of a fallen world. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. I almost wonder if Jairus was thinking in his head through tears, See, I knew it. We waited and look what happened. It was nice that you stopped to heal this woman and all, but remember, she was unclean and older anyway. My daughter had her whole life ahead of her. And again, to be fair, we don't know that Jairus thought that, but we might have if we were in that situation. 
How does Jesus respond? I'm not clearly sure why, but for some reason, verse 50 are some of my favorite words from the mouth of Jesus. And it could be that it's such a contrast with the cold, hard reality of a fallen world when in verse 49, messengers come from Jairus' house that say simply, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. And in that statement, there's, a, there's this cold, hard reality of death, of a fallen and broken world, and a belief that this is beyond the help of Jesus, right? Don't trouble the teacher anymore. He clearly can't help you. Whatever help he could have offered, he can't do now. And to that, Jesus, I wonder if even as the messengers come talking to Jairus and Jesus is standing there, we don't know, but I wonder if Jesus perhaps is even looking at Jairus, watching his expression, watching his face. And as soon as the messengers are done, perhaps even put a shoulder, his uh, hand on Jairus' shoulder. And he says, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. well. Jesus did not have to say that. Jesus could have just continued on, gone to the house, healed Jairus' daughter, and gone about his way. And yet he stops, he condescends to meet Jairus right where he's at, tenderly and compassionately, in this moment of greatest need. And the very Son of God who calmed the wind and the storm with his word stops to comfort this grieving father and say, it's going to be okay. Just have faith. Don't listen to them. And Jesus cares like that. He cares that we are weary and heavy laden. He has come to give us rest. He cares that we are worried and troubled. He's come that we might cast our cares on him. He cares that we are tempted. He was tempted. So that we who sin might be saved in him who did not sin. He cares that a desperate father not only knows that Jesus can heal, but that Jesus can raise from the dead. And he stops to comfort this father, letting him know what he's about to do, even though he didn't have to, because he's that kind of savior. That somehow this Jesus who never hurried is faithful to accomplish the full plan of the Father and to bring joy to this grieving family, even though to Jairus this looks completely hopeless. Verse 51, and when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. You know, sometimes the crowd is wrong. Knowing that she was dead, but taking her 
verse 54, by the hand he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's be clear about this text. The meaning of this text, of these two healings, is not if you just have enough faith, your sickness will go away and your loved ones won't die. It's not what this text is about. We are never promised health in this life now. We are never promised that we can escape death, physical death, in the here and now. But we are promised that in the life to come, we will experience the full salvation of God and full healing and full freedom from sin. And we are promised that in this life now, we will experience the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit to give us grace and comfort and peace and help and strength, regardless of our circumstances. And Jesus heals a woman and raises a dead daughter to prove not only that he has the power to do so, and that he does so all the time, that he will, again, for all who believe in him, fully heal us and fully make us alive, but also that he is compassionate to do so, that he cares. And that's the point here. Jesus is the promised Messiah who is reversing the effects of the fall. He begins in small batches during his first time on earth, but he's going to return And for those who don't trust in him, there will be eternal punishment in hell. But for those who do believe in him, he will right every wrong. And he will heal every disease. And he will erase forever sin and all of its effects. And he proved it by healing physical sickness, by raising the dead to life. There is nothing beyond the reach of Jesus. And so I would just ask you, what are you experiencing today that seems beyond the reach of hope? For Jairus, it was his daughter. He had to be frantic at first when she was just sick, but then after she died, it seemed hopeless. This woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, she's broke. She's suffering physically. She's an outcast from society. Perhaps she couldn't imagine things would ever get worse. Maybe she thought I'm beyond the reach of Jesus. You see, this text, once again, is about the compassion of Christ and about the pattern and the power of Christ to reverse the effects of the fall. Not necessarily in this life, in the here and now, but in the kingdom to come. So how should we walk away from a text like this? Let me offer two brief ways as we close. First, let us trust in the limitless power of God. I don't know what effects of the fallen world are 
are biggest on the windshield of your life right now. I don't know what you're dealing with, whether it's physical problems or relational problems, financial problems, an end of life situation, maybe death is staring you or a loved one in the face. But let us trust in the limitless power of God. It doesn't mean that we won't experience storms or trials or suffering. But it does mean that there is a reality greater than all of our suffering and all of our sorrow. There's a hope beyond the grave that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Through our adoption in Him. So let's trust in the limitless power of God. And let's trust in the timing of God. (laughs) That's sometimes the hardest, isn't it? We know God can. We know God eventually will. But we struggle with when. And perhaps that's why Jesus did what he did here in this passage. Maybe that's why he took so long getting to Jairus' house. Remember, Jesus could heal with a word. Jairus comes, falls down, please come to my house. My daughter is sick and at the point of death, she's only 12 years old. And Jesus, all right, go home, your daughter's healed. Right? He could have done that. He does do that. And yet for whatever reason, he chooses in this situation to patiently wait. And maybe it's so that Jairus' faith would grow. And so that we and everyone else who has heard of this event will be reminded that there are no limits for God. That there is no one who is beyond his saving power. Not a poor outcast daughter with a 12-year chronic disease and not the 12-year-old daughter of a, rele- of a leading religious figure who trusted in the limitless power of God. So let's trust in the limitless power of God. And then secondly, let us pray for more faith to endure. Let's pray for faith to endure. We can be afraid of all the things that can go wrong in life, all the effects of a fallen and broken world, or we can trust Jesus to see us through. Like We can be afraid of what might happen to our kids, or we can entrust them to God's good care. We can be afraid of what people will think of us, or we can trust God to give us our identity and our worth. We can be afraid of losing everything we own, or we can trust him to lovingly provide for us. We can fearfully try to make all of our plans in life work out the way we want. Or we can entrust ourselves to the good God who shapes us according to the desires of his heart. We can cling to this life as it is now. Or we can trust that there is a day coming far better than anything we've experienced here. You see, whenever fear comes... An opportunity for faith comes with it. May we pray for more faith to endure. To trust in God as we hear his voice even when we don't see his hand. During World War II, as the Nazis were bombing London, 
The story is told of a father holding his small son by the hand. The building that they were in had just been struck by a bomb. So they ran outside, and in the front yard there was a shell hole. Seeking shelter as soon as possible, the father jumped into the hole and then held up his arms for his son to follow. And terrified, yet hearing the father's voice telling him to jump, the boy replied, I can't see you. And the father, looking up against the sky that was tinted red by the burning buildings, called to the silhouette of his son, but I can see you. Jump. Brothers and sisters, that is the same kind of faith that Jesus calls us to exercise. Not by leaping blindly in the dark, but by falling and trusting in his arms because we hear his voice. Because we read his voice. We trust him for the forgiveness of our sins through his death on the cross. We trust him for spiritual healing from the hurts that we have experienced and the wounds in a fallen world. And we trust him for grace to endure trials and suffering with perseverance and patience and a settled confidence in the goodness of our God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.